0: Hi everyone, my name is Naomi Depina. I work for State Street Global Advisors in our spider ETF business. Um, I'm pleased to co-share this event with Sage Advisory, one of our great partners. So many of you may know State Street for Spy and Sectors, but I know us for our amazing partnerships for best in class firms like Sage Advisory. And uh, this event today, we're very excited as it is such a relevant topic that we're all thinking about. So I'm gonna get it started and kick it over to Bob Smith, President and CIO of Sage Advisory. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Naomi, and, and, and good evening to everyone. And we're very proud and very happy to be working with Stage Straight to uh, bring this wonderful opportunity to listen to some wonderful people. Um, and um, I wanna say that um, you know, we're very happy to have you here. Um, I'm sitting in Austin, which is home to our cherished Longhorns and uh, certainly the the wonderfully creative and talented professionals that We're going to be hearing from tonight in the discussion. As we all know, the coronavirus pandemic is a global crisis of historic proportions and one that will likely result in fundamental shifts in the way economies and societies operate. While the exact pathway out of this crisis, crisis is still unknowable at this point, with variables including the effectiveness of national containment, which we know also well here in Texas on the second round and efforts to, you know, be successful in, in terms of the development of vaccines, this crisis is undoubtedly going to shape, you know, trends in all facets of life, including our day-to-day personal behaviors, uh, our social interactions, as well as our thinking about the future for our families, our livelihoods, and our lifestyles. So to help us better understand our feelings and our reactions and our concerns about all these challenges in the age of COVID-19. We're pleased to bring uh, our guest uh, speakers, Dr. Art Markham, Dr. Bob Duke, two of the University of Texas most preeminent psychologists, and the longtime producer of their popular NPR show, Two Guys on Your Head, Rebecca McEnroy. For those of you who are not familiar with these uh, very nice folks, I will tell you that each week on their radio show and podcasts, two guys on your head, Dr. Markham and Dr. Duke, explore different aspects of human behavior and the brain uh, with their host, Rebecca. They have covered everything imaginable that you might confront through the course of your daily life and then some. So I'm pleased to have them uh, with us uh, now to discuss their thoughts about our pandemic brain. Rebecca.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. Welcome, everyone. Thanks very much. So Bob Duke is sporting a nice Hawaiian shirt. Is there a word for the shirt, or it's just a shirt?
2: Uh, It's just a shirt. It's just a shirt. (laughs) It's 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 it's, it's one of my happy shirts. So it's oh, it's
1: beautiful, beautiful. Nice is um, a
2: good word, though.
1: (laughs) Doctor Art Markman in the middle with the headphones in, they both have a book out. So if after this, you would like to go and purchase Smart Thinking, Smart Change, or Brain Briefs, which is more along the lines of the show, which they wrote together, you can always purchase those um, at Amazon or wherever you choose to get your books. They're fantastic. Um, So tonight we're going to be talking a lot about human behavior during this time of this pandemic which just seems very very strange and uh to start off i'll tell you this story last night i took my daughter to a drive-in movie theater it finished at like 11 o'clock so we're driving home and we drive past kut and i'm taking the same road that i would usually take home from work and i had this feeling come over me that was like I felt like I was visiting a place I used to live, visiting a place I used to work and frequent. And it felt very, very strange. And for the first time since the pandemic, I got a sense that things are never going to go back to normal or back to the way that they were before March 13th or whenever we you know, left for spring break. Um, and I think that my coming to that is now this acceptance of, well, things just have to change. But I think we're all coming to it very differently. And especially when we talk about people who are joining us this evening from all over the country, we're experiencing it in, as Bob said, right before we got on, in these waves. And so now we're kind of gearing up for a real tight um, panic in Austin, I feel. Well, maybe not panic, but more of a, I don't know what it is, you know, but bracing for what's ahead, that's for sure. Um, Whereas in New York and Spain and Italy, they're You know things are getting a little bit back to normal so um those are a few of my thoughts but i would like to know where you guys want to start this evening
3: well i you know one 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 thing we could talk about is is just well i think i should start i think (laughs) absolutely that's i i just assumed that i Uh, yeah there you go uh, one thing we could start talking about is, is I think, the, the, the monumental uncertainty that we all face right now and the way that that's affecting mood, but also the ability to, to get anything done. You know, and, and in particular, you know, one of the things that we see all over the place is a desire to, uh, to wait for more information all the time. Where we're, You know, where people are paralyzed right now because they feel like, well, I... I don't want to make a decision because, uh, because things might change. And, and so, and so if I, if I can kick the can down the road further, that is, that is somehow going to make things better. And I, and of course, waiting for more information is, is not always a bad thing, but I think we have to recognize, uh, two things. One, that, that if you, if you wait for more information, then uh, you'd better make sure that that piece of information is actually going to influence your decision. So there, there are some great studies that got done years ago by, by uh, Eldar Shafir and Amos Tversky and Itamar Simonson showing that people in, in times of uncertainty will sometimes pay, even pay money, for information that doesn't ultimately affect their decision. It just affects the reason why they made the decision. And so it's it's worth actually running through your decision tree and making sure that 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 actually waiting would lead to a different outcome. Because if not, you are not giving yourself much time to prepare for the future while uh, ultimately waiting on something that's not going to affect what you do. And, and then the other thing that I think is important is, is, is to remember that we live in very dynamic environments in which if we fail to make a decision, other people are making decisions that may somehow force us into a situation that we don't necessarily want to be in and so it's it's bad enough that we feel a lack of what we call agency uh where you know the the the, the lack of of the ability to control the future but the longer we wait to decide things the the more that the world may actually take most of the available options out of our hands
2: yeah yeah and you know it's 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 complicated, and by by the, by the by the fact that we have very patterned ways that we've established in terms of decision making, right? I mean, whether well, it has to do with trivial decisions like what we're going to buy at the grocery store or when we're going to go to the grocery store, or things that have more serious consequences that affect a company or affect my family or other kinds of things. And once we've sort of gotten into a way of doing things that's worked fairly well for us over a long period of time, to suddenly have all that removed, and now I don't have the same sources of information that I used to have. And as Art was alluding to a minute ago, I now have to decide well what information would actually be meaningful to me. You know, because I, I think for 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 most of us, I think we've been in a business for a long time and we've done our jobs for a long time and we've gotten pretty good at it there are certain contexts in which we operate that now provide comfort because i know how to do this job in this context Mm -hmm. and now suddenly many variables in the context have changed and so that sense of security i had and confidence about my own capabilities are now a little bit discombobulated because now i don't have the same context i mean there are things and as Art was saying, that not only where information is coming from, but when it's coming. And I know that other people are also trying to deal with the same kinds of flux. Imp- hmm.
1: You kind of froze, Bob, but I'm sure it'll kind of it'll it'll come and catch well, up with us. There's some
3: uncertainty. Well, while he's frozen,
1: <laughs> well, that's another uh, thing we were going to talk about: was you know working and living in these virtual worlds.
3: Yeah. Well, this is a, a perfect segue. There we go. Yeah. Oh, and
1: wait, before you do that, um, if you would like to ask a question or leave a question, just click the ask a question link at the bottom of the screen and we will get to those, you know, like 530, 5, 45 So feel free to ask questions and I'll be uh, moderating those in just a bit. But go ahead, yeah. Art. Yeah, Unser- well, so,
3: so since we segued, I, Bob will be thrilled to know the uh, oh. the, the, the picture of him that's stuck frozen to the screen right now. But, um, but I think that that one of the things that that's been difficult for many people is that we, we are uh, trying to get our work done in in uh, less than professional environments sometimes. So we're, we're home. Um, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, there's there's my peloton. Uh, so that's that's the room that I work in. Uh, and uh, we, you know, we don't always have uh, uh, ideal Wi Fi or tech support And uh, and and so we've we've had to come to adapt to lots of of changes in circumstances. And and that's been a you know, that's been an adjustment for some people. I think that for those people who spend their lives wanting to have everything under tight control and, and from a personality standpoint, the the personality characteristic of conscientiousness comes along with this desire for order. And, and so if you're a highly conscientious person, then, then a lot of these fits and starts uh, can, can actually be very disruptive to your ability to get work done because you, you spend time worrying that something might go wrong. You know, luckily, Bob is not a particularly conscientious guy. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It, it, it's, these, you know, that, that characteristic is true of a lot of people who are very creative. And uh, and I think it's one of those characteristics that allows him to roll with the punches. So in the event that he ever gets logged back in, you'll never know uh, from his demeanor that that he that he got uh, locked out of this before. But um, uh, but but that's a uh, you know an important an important element is we have to learn to to be willing to deal with all of this all of these unexpected things that come up. Uh, whether it's these technological glitches or, or whether it's, you know, rapid changes in the, in the underlying world situation, it's very hard for people to plan right now.
1: You know, there's another thing about the way in which we make decisions that I want to explore a little bit, which is that what made me think of this was I was trying to figure out if I should choose to enroll my daughter back into school in the fall or if I should choose to choose to go remote and i try to keep up with the news every day and the science of it and i really have no idea what to choose and i thought this is a lot of responsibility so i was looking for ways to make an informed decision and i asked my partner i said like i i really don't know what to do they're wanting me to choose and he said the fact that they want you to choose shows that they're uncertain also and so i'm wondering about this information that we can use in the way in which things are asked, what is asked of us, what type of responsibility we need to take on ourselves personally, um, and and what that means as far as the certainty in the healthcare system, in the school systems, in public health. like All of these things that we didn't usually look at before, we have to consider. So the way that the questions are asked, and I want to know how how are we to switch? How is that? You know, the usual process of decision making is completely now kind of turned on its head. So what should we be looking for? What should we be asking ourselves and how can we cognitively make decisions that are based on more than we're used to seeing?
3: Yeah, well, there's a great set of issues. Right. Because on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of behavior that we go through in in a normal life that is default behavior. And Bob was alluding to that earlier, this this notion that, you know, you don't necessarily decide in an explicit way, which supermarket to go to, you just go to the place you always go, you buy many of the same foods you usually buy, you cook many of the same things you normally cook. So an, an awful lot of our behavior is kind of stereotyped, it's, it's habitual. And, and so when the world removes some of those defaults, that's the place where you know that something is amiss. Mm -hmm. And so the default has always been, and of course it's the law, but still the default has been, you send your kids to school in the fall. So now when they say to you, do you want to send your kid to school? Well, that's a strange question to ask, because it means that suddenly the world has changed in a way where nobody is sure what it is that you should be doing. So we're actually giving you a choice where you normally didn't have one because the default option was ideal. Um, And so and so one of the things you have to pay attention to is under what circumstances are people now asking you to do something that under normal circumstances, no one would ever even ask, are you going to do this? But I, but I think another piece to this is there's a lot of, there's been a lot of work on what's called the wisdom of crowds. And, and it's not that crowds are inherently wise, it's, it's that generally speaking, if, if there's information in the world that is helpful for, for you to make a decision, then, and if everyone has access to that information subject to some bias or error, And if that bias or error is generally speaking, unrelated or uncorrelated in each person, then if you ask a whole bunch of people about something on average, you get a pretty decent decision. Mm -hmm. And so You know, when you if you ask people what year a particular event took place, for example, that may not be a very famous event, but people, you know, people may have some sense of roughly when it happened. on average, people get it right because people are like, well, it happened maybe around 1940 and some people will be above 1940 and some will be below. And on average, you come out to the right to the right year if that's when it happened. And and so in those situations, you can actually uh all else being equal just go with what everybody else is doing that's mm-hmm. a strategy we often use and 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 we often feel like well what should i believe well if everybody else believes a particular thing it's probably a good idea for me to believe it too cuz it may very well be right But in a situation like this one where there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty where if you talk to expert epidemiologists they will disagree on certain things related to exactly how the disease is transmitted and things like that with that level of uncertainty the wisdom of crowds no longer holds up because because there isn't a a single bit of information that uh, that everyone can pay attention to and, and potentially have some bias against but instead there's a there's more of a free-for-all and mm-hmm. so and so now you know you ask yourself, well should I send my kid to school? Well, you could say, well what is everybody else doing mm-hmm. and, and and the problem is well everyone else is now going to have a bias mm-hmm. and, and so here's one of the biases. So uh, we have two underlying motivational systems. Gosh, I love it when Bob just disappears like this and I just get to talk. He's trying. Um, I know, I know. But I'm just appreciating I know you his, know. his willingness to <laughs> let me talk. So we have these two underlying motivational systems, right? We have the approach system, which is the system that engages when there's a beautiful, wonderful, desirable thing out there in the world, and we want to go to it. And then there's the avoidance system, which is the, the system that we engage when there's a potential threat or calamity that we're trying to avoid. And, and often in our in, in what is has historically been a fairly safe life that many of us live in the modern era, those threats tend to be more um, social or business oriented than existential. And and now with the pandemic, there's an actual threat to life and limb out there. And and but but what happens is, not only are we aware of this particular threat, but engaging that avoidance motivational system around a particular threat actually makes you more sensitive to potential threats in the environment in general and so the whole world seems more dangerous when you are trying to avoid a threat now why have i raised this here well let's go back to this issue of well what's everybody else doing if Everyone is in this avoidance mode right now because everyone is afraid of the pandemic, they're afraid of the economic collapse, they're afraid of all sorts of, th- of real threats that are out there in the environment, what we're doing is overweighting the threat and underweighting the beautiful, wonderful, desirable things that are out there in the environment. And if you think, so now we get to the question, should I send my kid to school? Well, there are some beautiful, wonderful, desirable things about sending your kid to school. It's a great experience. They have a social experience. They learn, you get them out of the house. These are all beautiful, wonderful, desirable things. But uh, there are some real threats out there. And if you overweight the threats because you are in this kind of prevention mode, well, then, then eventually, hey, Bob, uh, event, if, if everyone is overweighting the threats, then you then you have a bias towards people saying, well, I'm not going to send my kid to school. Yeah. And so now anyone who's really unsure of what to do looks around and says, well, everyone else is doing it. So I guess that must be the right thing to do. And so yeah. you get a stampede towards a particular uh outcome that may or may not actually be the ideal one because you don't have people independently evaluating what's going on. Yeah,
1: And I, I find myself just wanting someone to tell me what to do. Like freedom from choice. I I don't know if I'm going to make the right decision. I don't have all the information. Um, And I, I don't know if that is, you know, this, this, this idea of having to weigh all of this and then saying, you know what? I just, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a public health official. I don't know what to do. Please don't ask me if I want to do. wear that. a mask. Yeah, that's yeah, one thing for sure. Bob, well, you know, and, you and, and, kick off, we talked about yeah. dealing with virtual environments. Yeah. So, like this, not, <laughs> <laughs> what's, for? what's on your mind?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think, The idea about dealing with virtual environments, one of the things that I was saying probably to myself after I blipped off a little while ago was that, you know, one of the things that meeting like this uh, takes away is the opportunity of interaction among members of your group. I mean, Art and I are in the process of figuring out how to move teaching online in the fall. And of course. You know what i what i missed in the second half of the spring semester when we were forced to start teaching online immediately uh, was the conversations that students had with one another before and after class and i know that they missed them too and and you know when you think about what what's the point of having a live meeting when you can do this well i, I mean granted there are many advantages to being able to meet on zoom you don't have to travel anywhere you can do things very efficiently and those kinds of things but if you're trying to build a sense what of because not have to wear pants, exactly. There are all kinds of positives. But it, but it, but if you're trying a sense of community, the fact that I can't just lean over and say something to Art privately right now, mm-hmm. or to Rebecca, changes the, the dynamic of the interaction. And, and I think you know there are many companies who, for a long time, have figured out that there are many tasks that can be accomplished at a distance online. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to decision making that involves some careful thought and evaluating information and coming to some consensus through informed discussion, uh, this kind of environment uh, leaves a lot to be desired, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Go ahead. Art. No, go ahead. Well, you know, I mean, with that question, I was wondering, there's so many things in psychology that look at nonverbal communication. Um, the ways in which we are showing what we think or how we feel that aren't based on just speaking to one another. And what I'm wondering is after this, are there going to be um, new studies into the nonverbal ways in which we're communicating in virtual environments where we're looking at ourselves and then somebody else? And we also have other people who are watching us. What types of things, what questions will be asked in psychology as opposed uh, or? As pertains to these different cues of nonverbal communication.
3: Well, I, you know, I think I think one of the the, the things is, you know, this is a very hard environment for people. We can't tell who's looking at whom. Uh, you know, one of the beautiful things about about being in the same space at the same time is that you can you can look at each other and and make eye contact and communicate in ways. So, for example, you know, we often do these events live, sitting sitting in a, you know, on, on stools on a stage, and, and we don't talk over each other too much in that environment, because, because we've, we've learned effectively to look at each other, and we can tell who's leaning forward just a little bit more, who's, who's really, usually it's me, uh, who, who's ready to just, you know, seize the floor. But, but I think that that it's just much harder to do that in, in these environments. And, and there's been a lot of work, over the years actually on, on what's called co-presence this, you know, what, what, what is it that signals that you're in the same physical space and, and these environments, you know, these, particularly these kind of Hollywood squares type environments are just, they're really hard uh, to, to navigate. You have to be much more explicit. And one of the things that has not happened very well yet is that we have not done a good job of developing better social norms, about how to communicate things like "I'm ready to speak next" or "Would you please finish what you're saying?" and all of those other things that we do so well uh, in, in in other environments. Because you know we we've done that. I'll just say one more thing We've done this with things like you know text. So so people text each other, and then we got you know first we got emoticons, and then we got emojis that are that that are all basically intended. To, to help us to get some of that nonverbal communication back into the in, into the scenario, and and at some point we're going to have the the Zoom equivalent of the of the emoji.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
2: I just had one, one thing, and it just has to do with general practices of human communication. Um, you know, as I was saying a minute ago, there are all kinds of nonverbal cues that we read when we're interacting with people. And a lot of that stuff has been studied to death, you know, but, 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 but now there, there is something about the presence of another person that changes the way we experience what we experience. I mean, we, we probably all know or, or or recall that at the dawn of television, everybody predicted there's going to be no more live school, because you could learn what you need to learn just looking at the television. Why would you need to go to school and build a building and all that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And then when 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 uh, video recording came out for movies, you know, you go to Blockbuster and rent a VHS recording of a movie and play it on your own TV. Everybody on movie theaters because why? Why would you go outside and pay for a, a tub of popcorn when you could stay at home and watch the movie? And what I missed in all of that? is the value of shared human experiences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and even though you know i can see art and i can see rebecca i have no idea who's watching this or listening to this or whether you're liking this or whether you think it's terrible or i there's there's no shared experience here and and we often undervalue shared experiences i mean we imagine that we're all sort of these isolated people and stuff and accomplishing this, not really taking the time to think about what the value of sharing experiences is for not only building cohesion in a group, but also giving confidence to people as they move forward that they're getting necessary, actionable feedback from the people around them, even though no one's explicitly saying, it's my turn to talk now, and now the screen goes to me.
3: No, yeah, and it's very and, class- and then- <laughs> yeah, nice job. But, but, Thank but- you. You know what's interesting is there's a there's a lot of social experience even in being in an audience so you might think well why does this matter but for one thing bob is a whole lot funnier in front of a group Ah! and 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 the reason for that isn't (laughs) and and it's and it's not because of what he says he's saying the same stuff The, the problem is it's it's you guys out in the audience you're you're not together and so and so what happens is as soon as somebody senses something was funny and engages in 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 a little little bit of laughter that affects everyone else around around them, and so uh, you know I, I, apparently I'm even funnier in front of a crowd so you know oh, I think, no I, question about I, it yeah, yeah right <laughs> funny er, right no, yeah No, no, no uh, question. well well case in point right, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly uh, but but you know the same thing it's not just humor that works that way it's also your ability to pay attention i mean you, you know if you think about about the i mean you, many of you have probably had the experience of sitting and trying to watch a television show alone and, and people find themselves then texting other people and checking their phone and doing all this other stuff, which they will not do as much of in, in when there's a group of people who are all watching the same thing. Because just the act of being with a bunch of other people who are paying attention to something increases your own sense that that's the action you should be taking. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's actually quite difficult a lot of our students uh, in in the spring when they suddenly found themselves attending class virtually talked about how difficult it was to really pay attention in class in the virtual envi- environment and and what they meant by that was even more difficult than 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 it is when they're in person in part because it's just hard to watch a screen for that period of time and really really pay attention to what people are saying
1: yeah You know, um, as we're talking about this, you you mentioned it's very difficult to be productive during this time Um, to be to get anything done, to keep your mind on anything, you know, at this time. And I want to talk about that. But before that, we have a a question from the audience from Nick Mm -hmm. Erickson. He is asking in line with the current topic. Would you expect an increase in shared experience being delivered to parents of children who then must relay this information to their children, assuming they are schooled at home?
2: Mm. I'm not quite sure. I I, I, I don't understand the question, but it's about now sharing the experience with your children. Is that the? Yeah.
1: So it's basically asking, you know, our parents, I think, I'm sorry, Nick, I don't want to Put words in your mouth, but what I think you're asking is: Are parents going to be required to share more in these educational online experiences? Um, does that help? And are they also ne- needing to be a part of the child's education to offer them some type of like live group experience? Um, yeah, yeah. As Part of the educational process, and if that's wrong, well, yeah. Add to that. <laughs>
2: you, you know, I, this is. Um a problem that many parents are confronting who are first of all fortunate enough to be able to work from home but then also having their children at home who are supposed to be doing their schoolwork at home and it's a it's a lot to juggle and i th- you know i i think what schools are now asking of parents to kind of keep all this together is 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 a lot and more than many families can actually uh, accomplish, because it is true. I mean, the reason that we get people together, there's a, there's a socializing feature of being in school and working with children and those kinds of things. And, you know, kids, kids know where they are. I mean, human beings know where they are. Now I'm at home, now I'm in school, and all the cues in that environment lead me to behave in certain ways and do certain things. And now we've mixed all that up. So now I've got a kid who's staring at his teacher on a screen in his bedroom, perhaps, or on the kitchen table. And there are all these confusing combinations of things that we're used to having pretty compartmentalized. You know, you go to work, you do your job, you come home, you go to school, you learn, you come home, and now all that stuff is kind of mixed up in the same environment. And I think You know, one of the things that before we, you know, get out of here tonight, we ought to talk about is how to actually make things happen purposefully, so the things that really matter about maintaining a healthy life experience for you, for your children, for your whole family, for your coworkers, are as much in place as we can make them. But I, Mm -hmm. but I think in answer to the question, I think schools are expecting more than they should perhaps, that parents now provide the kinds of guidance that uh, they're not used to providing at all.
3: Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we have to, we have to recognize in all this is that, you know, human beings are remarkable, because we we come pre-programmed with very little knowledge. If you think about it, most other species, not only, not only do they have the ability to learn things, but they come with a lot of knowledge. So, so, you know, I, 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 the story I always tell is how, of having a baby deer born on my front yard. Uh, and within a day, it had stood up and bounded off with its mom. And within a year, it was a fine, upstanding member of the deer community. And, and I have three kids in their 20s who are just barely becoming productive members of society. And so it seems unfair that my kids were on the dole for 20 years and these deer were able to be members of their community in a year. But the thing about deer is they come programmed with a lot of their knowledge and so they're really good at evading predators and finding food in the forest they're really bad at navigating semi-urban austin texas so what is it what is the advantage that that humans have here we are well adapted to learn from other members of our species and so we allow ourselves to be programmed by the people around us about how to navigate the world so that even though iPads didn't exist in our evolutionary niche, we're still perfectly comfortable with them because we can learn about them from other people. So if you if we put all this together, it means that parents are the, that social environment that's gonna be really critical uh, for kids to learn, and because they, the kids aren't getting out into the social environment of the school anymore, there's a very narrow band communica- of communication that the schools can provide through a screen. It's not individualized. The teachers can't make eye contact directly with the kids, and so it's a it's a very difficult circumstance to learn in for college students and younger, younger kids uh, alike. And so to the degree that the home environment can create some of that, that social influence that 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 engages, that's wonderful. But unfortunately, there are two problems with that one is people are busy right now. And so it's putting a tremendous burden that we had shifted to the school system onto parents. And then there's another problem, which which frankly um, reinforces pre-existing differences among families. And so families with high levels of education will find it easier to help their children to navigate the education system than families who have low levels of education and don't have as much experience with the educational system. And so because so much of your ability to rise upwardly within this society is influenced by performance in school. If if your social environment at home is not reinforcing a lot of that in this, particularly in this environment, that's going to perpetuate some of the differences among families that we already see.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, there's a, another question we have, which is such a great question. And I don't know if you guys know the answer to this. But seriously, why is there so much resistance to wearing masks? Like why? <laughs> it even it, and Arthur. Well, well. That, for one, like, one what thing, bad?
2: is uh, uh, one 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 cause is a Y chromosome, uh, because uh, men, you know, men. What are you going to do? And, and but I but I think I don't you know,
1: understand. The, yeah, men just don't want to wear masks.
2: I, I mean the thing that's interesting about this to me. The, they would if you told them Just, not. To. Yeah, exactly. The interesting uh, about, about thing about this hu- to me about human human behavior is how easy it is to define a given behavior in a way that has nothing to do with the behavior itself. Uh, I, I I think anybody who drives now—I probably shouldn't say anybody—but the vast majority of people who drive put on a seatbelt. Uh, the vast majority of people who care about their health probably brush their teeth and do other things that don't have uh, immediate positive consequences, although your mouth might feel a little better. But but what what we're doing is taking precautions that given some catastrophe, like a car accident, we would be protected from that. But that's become a culturally, it, it, it's, it's become the consensus in the culture that that's a smart thing to do. There's not a consensus in the culture about mask wearing. There, there are pockets of the culture who are not uh, of a mind that this is something that needs to happen. And I think one of the, one of the things interesting about this to me is, is that um, this is probably 20 years ago. The, the, when, when the AIDS epidemic was, was looming much larger than it is now, and advertising was making an attempt to get people to wear condoms during sex. And what was interesting is that the pitch that was made, uh, which isn't as made as forcefully about mask wearing, except by Tony Fauci, I think, is that you don't, you don't wear the mask to protect yourself. You, you, you wear the mask to protect people around you. And so now it becomes an act of courtesy. It it, it, it it becomes an act of you know group solidarity that you would do this to take care of people. And I don't think it's defined that way now. I think many people who I see are resistant to masks see it as only not that not wearing a mask is only if it has any deleterious effect. It would only be on them and not on the people. Yeah, yeah There's
3: a, there's also an interesting framing effect that that um, that relates to a show that we did a, a couple of months ago, but. You know, one of the things that makes this this pandemic situation so difficult in general is is that it, it creates what's called an avoidance avoidance conflict, which is is the worst case scenario for decision making. So there are plenty of decisions that just involve a single noxious thing where you have to pick the lesser of two evils. And, and, and so, you know, it's, it's I don't want to do either one of these, but I, I, I want to do this one least. You know, I'm, I'm most willing to do this one, so I'll do it. The, the problem with the avoidance avoidance conflict is you have two catastrophes out there. And the two catastrophes in this case are there's a pandemic. So if we if we engage in a lot of social activity, we increase our risk of getting sick. But if we decrease our social activity sufficiently, uh, we also can harm the economy. And so by people holding up in their homes, they're not going out and shopping. They're not going to restaurants. They're not spending money. And so the economy suffers. And the problem is that many of the behaviors that are protective against the, 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 the pandemic hurt the economy. And many of the, the, the behaviors that might help the economy put people at greater risk for the disease. And so you have you create this kind of tension between am I going to be more focused on the economy? Am I going to be more focused on on, on staying safe? So here's the interesting thing. Masks are this funny thing where they are protective for the for, against against the disease and have very little negative consequence for economic activity. They have some. It's very hard to go to a restaurant while you're wearing a mask. Uh, but 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 it's it's not it there's much less negative impact for the on the economy for wearing a mask. But it is a protective behavior that gets lumped into the category of protective behaviors. And so part of what has happened is because we have created at least in the U.S. right now a dichotomy between protect the you know uh, protect the economy, protect individuals from the pandemic. We then sort behaviors by, are they more pandemic related or more economic related? And, and, we, and then we demonize the people who, do, who, who, who think the other goal is the one we should be pursuing. And so those behaviors that are actually pretty good for both get, get left in the cold. And I think that's part yeah. of what's happened with masks. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: We have another question, and this is regarding the value of shared experiences. And Robert Smith asks, "How important are the tactile senses in environmental situations to build cohesion? Things like smells, lighting, temperature, external sounds, and all of the elements of buildings. Um, all of the elements of building cohesion are not there. The virtual communication world eliminates these important factors. This is a tough one to overcome. Any suggestions?
2: Well, I mean, I mean, I, first of all." That's a great question. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, are our, 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 the memories that we form uh, encompass all of the things that are part of our experiences. And even though we may think, you know, the the aroma in a meeting room of the chairs or you know, the leather chair or something like that is really not part of our memory. It's part of our memory. And and in ways that are really interesting. Right. Because if if, if we're in a particular environment, for example, and we learn something or we hear about something, uh, it's gonna be easier for us to recall that memory if we're in the same environment or there, if there are pieces of that environment that can be somehow transported to wherever we are. You know, In fact, there's an interesting in a place right now in improving the consolidation of memories during sleep in which uh, these experiments are really intriguing. So they have somebody learning some new thing, and there's a scent in the room of, of you know, lilacs or something. And, uh, and then while this person is asleep, during the stages of sleep, when they would likely be consolidating that memory, uh, if you expose that person during sleep with the scent of lilac that was present when they were learning the thing, they tend to remember the thing better because it, cause an even stronger consolidation. So, 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 so I mean, so context. I mean, it's all my way to say context matters a lot, right? And, and I think in the thing, in in the question, embedded in the question of, well, what, what do you do about that? When we're, we've got this sterilized screen that we're looking at is to think about what are the elements of the environments in which we have worked and like to work that we can recreate virtually uh, some of those would be possible. Some of them not so. But
3: that seems yeah. like a and good and and you know and and can we redecorate the spaces we're in a little bit as well? Because you know we we even even those of us who who, who typically work in in the same office every day, you know we're not we're generally not uh, spending every moment in the same room of that building every day, you know, we, we, we may meet with a colleague in their office, we may go to a conference room, we may, uh, we, we, we may take, you know, hop in the car, and drive to see a colleague somewhere else. And so there's a certain amount of change of context that happens. And what's happened to a lot of people over the last 110 days, or one day, uh, depending on, on how your memory is for that is, is that you're in exactly the same room in, in potentially exactly the same body position for All of those days, and it makes it very hard to differentiate among the various experiences that you've had. And so lots of people have reported having no clue what day it is or what month it is, uh, because in part because they're spending all of their time in exactly the same physical space and and the fact that that a you know the, the main context change is the people who appear in all those little squares in front of you in the meetings that you're having and that that is that gives you very little good information to go on to to really differentiate situations and so yeah. to the extent that you can create some systematic changes you know one of the things you can do uh, this, is, this is a fun thing to do you can, you can hang different things on the four walls of a room you're working in. So even if you're not lucky enough to be able to move from one room to another, just create different walls in the room, you know, using, using like big post-it notes or something, and then just face in different directions at different times uh, while you're working so that the thing that is in your immediate visual sphere changes and, and even that can have an influence on, on your ability to feel like you're not just in one position all day.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: And, and we've said
2: on, on many occasions that our brains are not something that our bodies carry around inside of our skull. I mean, our bodies and our brain are all a thing and they're all connected. And one of the things that I think makes this sort of static reality worse is having to be physically stuck in the same place that doesn't allow us to move. I mean, one of the things, if you're in a meeting room, you, you, you can move the chair around, you know, you could go stand up for a while, you could do something else. And one of the things that facilitates just feeling less trapped in this kind of environment is moving. I mean if you have a laptop taking it to another room maybe sit outside if the weather's nice enough to sit outside maybe dance as art is demonstrating right now we planned all this before this talk uh doing 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 things that allow you to be changing up what you're what you're, what you're doing because as art was saying when you're in a building you're going to meetings you're walking down the hall you walk out of the back i mean all those all those movements are part of your experience, even though they mostly operate below our conscious awareness. We're not even aware we're having them. But when they go away, something's weird. And one way to diminish the weirdness a little bit is put some of that
1: movement back in. Yeah. Um, so we have two great questions. And they might tie together a little bit. So I'll read them both. Okay. Uh, the first is, what do you think will be some longer long term or long, what, I'll start over. What do you think will be some of the longer term effects on human behavior and social interaction after we have reached the development and widespread distribution of an effective vaccine? So that's the first question. And then the second question is, how do we as people cope without platonic touch, hugs and things like that, when we now live apart from our families and friends and social experiences, churches, etc.? Those are the two that actually, you know, they might they might blend pretty well. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, you know, we, we as a species, we I mean, touch is good for us. You know, uh, it, 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 it's something it releases calming chemicals for us. The right kind of touch can release calming chemicals for us. Um, it, it's it's a you know, so hugs are good, you know, a, a pat, a massage. You know, these are all wonderful things and uh, and and in this era of of social distancing we don't even we don't even shake people's hands anymore let alone hug close friends and things like that and i think that that's difficult for us and you can see it difficult that it's difficult when you see people pass each other on the street for example who are friends you know a lot of people are out walking these days which is wonderful and you see an old friend and you could see people initially wanting to take a step towards each other and then having to go ooh i can't do that um, and and so I think that's been very difficult for us, and I think I think we will have a greater appreciation of that ability to engage physically with with the, with the people around us, um, in you know in, in appropriate ways uh, when 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 this is over, um, I, you know I do wonder how much true long term change there's going to be. A lot of people say things are never going to be the same again, and I fear that actually you know three years from now most everything will be the same. Uh, and then there'll be some small differences that we'll be able to pick out as, oh, that's kind of a pandemic behavior.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you
3: know, I, I just want to say what, what, one thing about being in
2: situations like this, and Art, again, and I both have thought about this, about what happens in university edu- education and what, are, what experiences our students are going to have and those kind of things. You know, I, I, not, not to be too Pollyannish about this, but I'm, an, I'm a tenacious optimist. And I think one of the things that happens in situations like this, any of us who have tried to make any change, especially system-wide changes that change generally the way we do things, if things are going along well enough, you know, if day to day we pretty much getting stuff done that needs to get done and that kind of thing. And somebody comes in and says, you know, this might be better if you tried this other thing, you know, I mean this is how consultants make their living, right? You know, if you just kind of do this over here and change the way you organize this meeting or something. And most people are, don't have a lot of incentive to do that because, again, things are moving along. I mean, most people are satisfied with what's going on. It seems doing well enough. And then suddenly something like a global pandemic comes along. And now it's not that you you, you can choose to do what you've always done. You may not do what you've always done. Now there are a couple of ways to look at that. You know, one is to think, how can I keep all the things that I did in the past just like that, but stuff them into a zoom window? Or I can be courageous and rethink everything. I can think really do is that really important, that thing that we were doing, you know, or should we reconsider that now that we're being forced to? And I think for many people who have been in the situation that we're all in right now. Have found interesting opportunities to think, well, I, you know, I I don't know why we're doing it that way, because we can do it this way and it doesn't, it seems like it saves a lot of time. And but but no one would have been incentivized to actually try that out because everything was going well enough. So if there's anything that I think a company, a school, an organization can exploit about the pandemic, it's that. It's an opportunity to genuinely reimagine
3: what could happen and yeah, never you know, let a good I, crisis go to waste.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The one thing though, before we, we wrap up at six, the one thing about that is a lot of people are in a mindset of fear right now, you know, there's, yeah. and I don't think that creativity and a mindset of fear really go together. So yeah. um, there are a lot of ways in which we can adapt and change. And sometimes I, I feel like if I can just get away from myself long enough, I can see all these amazing things that i could do you know but how yeah. do we get away from ourselves how do we get out of mindset of fear and more into a mindset of of creativity and creation and opportunity
3: so I, i'm gonna i'm gonna push back against one piece of that it's not that there's no creativity it's that the creativity you see in a pandemic is creativity around avoiding a catastrophe so so yeah what i was talking about before about these mindsets of of you know, if I'm in an if I'm in an uh, avoidance motivational state, and I have this general concern about every uh, everything that could go wrong, I might be extraordinarily creative. If you look at the people, for example, who are in biotech developing vaccines, we may very well have have the fastest vaccine development in recorded history uh, during this pandemic because people are being extraordinarily creative about thinking about developing vaccines. But it's all focused on avoidance of the negative. And a lot of what Rebecca, a lot of what you're talking about with creativity is is the kind of beautiful creativity of, of making a, you know, writing a beautiful song or, 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 you know, a great work of developing a great work of art, um, or, or creating a, an invention that betters people's lives in a positive way. That kind of creativity is harder because people are in this avoidance mindset, they are focused on the catastrophes. And so the only way to flip that is to is to start pursuing some number of approach goals, to look for beautiful, wonderful, desirable things in your environment that you can go after and it might be having a really good meal. So a lot of us right now are eating for avoidance, right? We're eating, we're, we're eating comfort food, which is you know just like let me shovel this stuff into my mouth and avoid any sensation and people are drinking a little too much not for the pleasure of the alcohol but for the numbness of it and 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 I think that that instead if we if we begin to shift our mindset a little bit towards here are some beautiful wonderful desirable things in my environment i'm let me let me engage with those what that does is also to open up my mindset more broadly to the other beautiful wonderful desirable things that are out there that can then become the key that that unlocks more doors towards towards that kind of of promotion based creativity
2: yeah yeah and you know I, I just had one tag to that that i think is a real opportunity because there is a lot of anxiety and a, a lot of fear And you know, I—I would tell you one—one goal that I think benefits not only the person performing the goal but the recipient Mm -hmm. is—is showing kindnesses to other people in this line. Good point. I think, especially. I mean, everybody will. Everybody will tell you, you know, if, if 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 someone is feeling depressed, and you know, do something nice for somebody else, you know, because first of all, it gets you out of your own. BS, right? And it focuses your, your your attention on someone who will likely be grateful that you extended the effort. And those kinds of kindnesses, you know, especially at a time like this, I think, uh, are, are a real, um, I, I don't know, clarifying ointment uh, to all the things that we're facing day in and day out.
1: So I just put a uh a poem in the chat by naomi she Nye about kindness that everyone should go read because it's fabulous (laughs) and we're coming up on uh six o'clock so before we go i would just like to say hello to everyone and thank you so much for joining us tonight for this discussion thanks for having us and thank you to jessica and to naomi and to arthur and to bob and everyone at sage for having us back and please do take care in this time and we're always around if you when to have another happy hour? Although none of us have had drinks. Well, I hope you guys are happy soon.
3: There you go. Soon.
1: Thank <laughs> and, you so and, much. Yeah, go ahead. And, but our, our, I was
3: going to say, and, and because I'm the designated self promotion, oh, yeah, uh make sure you make sure you check out the podcast. You guys on your head. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere that, uh, that 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 podcasts are found. You can follow us on Twitter at two g o y h. And uh, and on Facebook, so hope to hope to to have a few of you uh, hear, hear our voices uh, uh, in that way.
1: And we love you. Yeah. Thank you again for having us
3: back. Yeah, thanks so much. Take Be care, safe, everybody. Okay. Good night.
1: Okay. bye.